prosecution outlined how accounting practices oh, fuck. Well, did not What kind of likeness is that? If they were great artists, they'd be in a museum. I'm fucking fodder for cartoonists now. episode of gutter boys gutter boys a small press comics podcast about the ins the outs the highs and the lows of making comics i'm your host jb with my co-host cam what's up y'all uh today we are joined by uh los angeles based cartoonist josh pettinger and in the spirit of the collaboration between autoptic festival and the gutter boys podcast we are going to be joined on this first segment by a friend of the show pete fakey we're going to kind of switch it back to how we used to do it and we're going to have everybody on for questions during this first segment and then after the break we'll have our uh, main feature as part of the autoptic programming and our interview with josh we did get some questions for you, Josh, and then some that we can all kind of chip in on. Mm-hmm. So first question came from friend of the show, Rock Nassoon. How has this pandemic affected your comic process and your relationship to comics? Well, for me, it basically completely froze it for about a month. First month, I couldn't draw anything. Like I completely paralyzed by this, uh, like the fear of homelessness and poverty. And then like once the uh, unemployment came in, I, I started to realize that this is like, it's basically the thing I've been dreaming of. Or, you know, it sounds terrible because of all the death and destruction and everything, but I had time for the first time. I wasn't trying to fit in an hour between sleep and a a double. I was working in restaurants before this. And so, yeah, I was like super productive for maybe the last two months. And then when I moved to Los Angeles recently, and maybe just just under a month ago, I haven't been able to draw anything again. I've been animating. That doesn't feel... That feels so low stakes compared to comics because that's not what, you know, that's not what I've been uh, pursuing for all these years. So, yeah, I'm kind of still doing creative things right now, but I'm basically back to square one again with comics. The thought of, like, putting pen to paper is just, you know, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I'm kind of, uh, I'm getting ready to move and the, the, I'm just moving across town, but it's like throwing my process up too. just the idea of moving. I kind of yeah, was a mental like, burden moving. yeah, for sure. I, I was just laughing when you said it's what you've been dreaming of. Cause I was joking for a long time about just like waiting for the day where I can finally fucking get fired and get unemployment and just draw yeah. comics for a while before I got to look for another job. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, didn't really happen for me. I've been working through it the whole time, but uh, oh damn, yeah. I feel like the big thing it's done for me is I'm I'm not making any money on comics this year, and so I'm not buying as many comics, and I'm not reading as many comics, and uh, that's that's been a bummer. Oh, I've I found like I usually I can't read comics while I'm making comics, so I've definitely been mm. buying more comics and reading more comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I the beginning of the uh, pandemic, I didn't get unemployment until you know six weeks into the pandemic. But to be honest, I should have been working a lot more earlier on. But kind of like you, Josh, I was also just like too stressed to work. I did actually end up writing a whole comic and I'm actually in the process of working on that. Um, So my relationship to them, I have been reading a lot more comics. You know, when I started getting unemployment, you know, that extra stimulus boost, I tried to support the creators that I liked and I would go to the local shop here and try to pretty much get everything that Fana and Drawn and Quarterly put out because that's what they carry mainly. Um, And then I would order from people online to try and, you know, I'm getting all this free money. So if I can buy a $10 comic, anything I can do to help somebody else out um, that's in the scene. But as far as like my relationship to them, I've been, you know, happy that I've been able to read a lot more lately. But, you know, I, I'm still just as passionate about them. It kind of sucks because without shows, it kind of feels like it's directionless in a way because that kind of kept me on a schedule. 
But, you know, at the end of the day, I think my unemployment runs out in the very end of October. So I will be able to, quote unquote, get paid to work on this book, which will be pretty exciting. So not really much difference over here outside of the volume of what I've been able to read. Yeah, I'm staying passionate too. I, I I laugh every time I'm listening to an episode and JB's talking about how comics don't matter and all this because I'm like, in my head, I'm always like, comics are the only thing that matters. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the balance of the show is uh, I think they matter and JB doesn't, which is two very valid uh, viewpoints yeah, to have. We're both you know, right. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does it matter? Doesn't it matter? <laughs> what about you, JB? Uh, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> How has the pandemic affected your oh, comic process right, yeah. and your relationship to comics? Uh, well, not a whole lot, actually, now that I think about it. I mean, like I got on... Unem- you had I- to start doing a lot more freelance stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I got fired in March, like mid-March. No, early March, right when the pandemic was starting to pick up. So that was unfortunate. But it actually ended up being for the better because, you know, like you, you all were talking, getting unemployment and then also just getting to work constantly at home on, you know, cartoons and whatever has been pretty nice. But in terms of like my engagement with comics, it hasn't really changed because I mean, I think we all know that we don't go out much as a result of making comics. It, it is a very <laughs> solitary, long process. Uh, so not seeing other humans or interacting with other people, I, I feel like I've been preparing for this my entire life. Yeah, totally. It's our time to shine yeah. in that regard. Right. Yeah, I did feel like there was this thing at the beginning. I don't know if you guys noticed it, but at the beginning, like maybe end of March, early April, there was such a panic with cartoonists that, you know, all of our day jobs, well, so many of our day jobs were gone that everybody was buying each other's comics for like, for like a couple of weeks and then commissioning each other. And I don't know if you guys noticed any of that happening. No, for sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, kind of why I still like I bought more comics this year than ever. And I think that's just partly due to the fact that I have way more income than I'm used to having. Um, and also yeah. just like a need to, you know, not every like, you know, like you, Pete, you know, you weren't you didn't have the luxury of getting unemployment. So anything I can do, you know, to help support anybody with comics, there's a lot of comics that I feel like I normally wouldn't have bought if I was uh, working for my money. Not that I'm not working, but, you know, you get what I'm saying, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I the IRS, we're not no, actually working. Keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. So I I feel like, you know, I had all this like money that I wasn't used to having. So if I can buy, you know, like I said, if I could support, you know, artists that I normally wouldn't, not that I wouldn't support them, but I didn't have the financial means to, you know, possibly pick up a comic from them. You know, I'm, I'm happy to pass out that money if I can. Well, I can vouch for you, too. I, yeah, I think you were like one of the first or second orders on my new book this year. So, Hell yeah. Well, with yours, you know, I would have supported you. Yeah, 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 for yeah. sure. I still yeah. got to get that, actually. I'm the loser here because I haven't even bought that yet. I got some cool promo stuff coming up. So, it's kind of dumb. I keep telling people to like, wait for the promo, wait for the promo. So, I'm like prolonging my <laughs> prolonging my sales that I really need. But I do have some cool shit coming up. Hell yeah. Alrighty. So the next question, we got a couple for Josh here. The uh, next question comes from friend of the show, Alex Knoll. Is everybody a friend of the show now? Let's see. <laughs> Fuck all of them. Alrighty. Yeah. No more friends. Alrighty. No new friends. Especially Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, Alex Knoll wrote in and asked, Josh, is there any research that goes into writing like the war story in Goiter 3 or Victory Squad? minimal i mean it's it's all stuff that i've you know i've never researched anything specifically specifically for the comic it's just I've, I've always been interested in world war Two. you know i spe- i watch every documentary on world war Two ever made so i mean that just leaked its way into the comics that way but yeah i've never really done any research for a comic i probably would like for a larger if i was going to make a larger comic but i'm not researching these little uh smaller comics Hell yeah. Alrighty. So the next question came from uh, Evan Salazar, who you actually just recently put out a mini comic with, Wimp Digest. But um, Evan asked, why does he hate Whiteout so much? There's something that's diagnosable here, but uh, <laughs> if I'm working on a page, I put a tiny bit of Whiteout on. I just, it's so <laughs> hard for me to move to the next page. It's like the whole thing is ruined, tainted. I don't know. Still, there's something, I don't know, something I need to figure out, but I just want this perfect page that I've made from start to finish and there's no errors on it. I'm also like, I'm like that in every aspect of life, like with tidiness and things like that. Maybe it's like some form of OCD, I don't know, but I can't, I can't do whiteout. Start the page again. I redraw it. <laughs> Honestly, I have Do you ever do it? You, you would never do a paste over or anything then? No. Yeah. 
It's, yeah, it's, so, I've gotten better at it. Definitely the last comic I made, there's a lot of whiteout in it. But with that... Interesting. I mean, I have next to my desk, I'll have like five of exactly the same pages drawn exactly the same. And I'll be using a ruler to make sure it's exactly, everything's exactly where it was. Uh, you know, yeah, that is OCD. Terrible, you but, just described regular OCD. Yeah, I think so. I, I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't like saying it because I'm not diagnosed. It's like, you know. No, I think, um, well, why don't you just get a large format printer and you can do your pencils and then you can just print those out anytime you make a mistake instead of redrawing them by hand every time. Ah, sounds expensive. How much is a flatbed printer? Uh, the large format printers can run you about 200, 150 to 200. I don't you know. get the big flatbed scanner with it too, though. Yeah, that's There's, what it uh, is. Yeah, the flatbed. And then yeah. you can print Bristol board. Yeah, yeah, you can. If you get the large format one, you can print eleven by seventeen. Like I said, I've got I've gotten better at it. And uh, the last com- the last two comics I've worked on, there's a lot of whiteout in it. And I think I've gotten past that, but definitely for the longest time, I couldn't do whiteout. Well, the the upside to that is you have like a lot of versions of original art to sell. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure I've accidentally <laughs> sent people the wrong ones before. Once I'm in the in the comic, that makes it even more than that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you yeah. also that's also just so much drawing too. That's you get you get consistent that way. I used to do that with my thumbnails. I would just go straight to ink, and then if I messed it up, I'd just start over. Just figuring. You know, if you do it over and over again, you'll get it right. Wow. Well, the way I used to do it is even worse. Say I was on the fifth page and I made a mistake on the fifth page. It was all tainted oh, you start before the whole comic then. Over? So I, yeah, I've done that. I think oh, with Goya 2, no, two, I did that about three times, yeah. Wait, why did you have to do the previous pages again? Tainted, I don't know. Because the next one was messed up, man. The flow of the work was gone. I don't, yeah, I don't know, yeah. But, I mean, I've gotten past that for sure. I'm definitely not at that level anymore. Yeah. Wow. Hell yeah. Well, it's astounding that you've gotten as much work done as you yeah. have. I can't <laughs> yeah, imagine how much time you've yeah. spent. Well, like five issues in two years. Well, no, I put out, I put out, Goita, I put out Goita 1 in 2014, and I put out Goita 2 in 2018. Oh, okay. So, that's what, there was see. four okay. years of that, basically. Yeah, okay. But then Goiter 2 through 5 is all 2018 to 2020, so. yeah. Yeah, you sped up the process for sure. That's awesome. So, next question came from uh, Instagram user SadboyAngryMan. Josh, what got you into animation? For a little bit of background context, Josh, you have been posting uh, little animation videos that you've been making recently on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just The Simpsons. Like, originally, that was just like, basically, like I wanted to make cartoons since I went to school for animation too. So, it's, it's just like an obsession with The Simpsons growing up. That and like Beavis and Butthead, things like that. Is that a thing? I feel like as popular as The Simpsons are in the US, I feel like they're even more popular in the UK. Well, in the UK, there's, so there's like four television channels. Right. Well, you have like cable, but I mean, growing up, we didn't have cable. So, The Simpsons is shown, there'd be like, Two episodes in the morning, two episodes in the afternoon, two episodes in the evening. So it's just, wow. it's like that and Friends are the two things that you just watch multiple times a day. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, we have no Seinfeld, just Friends <laughs> and The Simpsons. <laughs> All programming is just Friends yeah. <laughs> and The Simpsons. No news. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It'll be like a Friends marathon in the morning and then it'll be a Simpsons marathon does UPN own the UK? I don't understand. <laughs> Is UPN even a network anymore? Yeah, did, you guys, know, did you guys have King of the Hill or anything? What you listening to, son? I don't think you like it. Well, why not? I like this new generation of music. Here we go. You're looking at the real deal now. <laughs> Gonna kick this sorry ass out on the street. Toilet sounds. Let me tell you, Bobby, there's nothing funny about these sounds. What that person on your tape has is a medical disorder. Yeah, we had a King of the Hill, I think, like, maybe once a week they would show King of the Hill. That was always blocked together with The Simpsons here. I I have very vivid memories of an hour at King of the Hill and then an hour at The Simpsons before dinner every night. I'm sure it's it's probably so expensive to buy an American show for syndication over in the UK. So they just have to milk it as much as they can (laughs) when when they do buy a show. 
Right. Yeah. Adds up. All righty. Next question is from Michael Sweater. Michael wants to know, do you think Netflix optioning things is what pushed SPX brand comics back towards cohesive narratives and away from the absolute flood of illegible resographed poetry of the last decade? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. No, I, uh, who wants to answer that one first? Yeah, who wants to tackle that first? Well, in my experience, I'll say this. I have been doing shows since 2014, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. So I may have missed, you know, the front half of that. I think I know the material that you're talking about, but... I mean, I still think, I don't think that Netflix, I think that there's two different types of people that make comics. I think that there are the people that make comics that they just want to pitch to Netflix, pretty much storyboarding, you know, a miniseries or a movie. And I think there are people like uh, us who just love making comics and we don't really do anything that's, you know, motivated or driven by a Netflix option. You know, if it happens, cool. But I really do think that there is a type of artist that leans into that and, you know, or not necessarily artists, you know, a writer and an artist, whoever it may be. But I really don't see, I still think that there's a strong, you know, art comic scene. You know, I still see a lot of that stuff and I enjoy some of that stuff. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, I enjoy, you know, comics with narratives and I also enjoy, you know, abstract comics, you know, that are just interesting to look at. But I don't really think that Netflix, in my opinion, has pushed comics in any way. I just think it, there's just individuals that try to use comics to get to Netflix. Yeah, I think I I agree with that. I think also kind of what's in fashion is always going to ebb and flow. And, uh, you know, a lot of that probably has to do with who's publishing what, you know, how visible those publishers are. So... I would imagine what he's responding to is seeing more narrative work coming out of bigger publishers, I would guess. I think there may be... You think it's just the publishers are just publishing things that they think can go to... Instead of artists making things more that they think can go to Netflix, the publishers are like grabbing the things that they think they can option later. That could be. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I also a lot of times for something to get optioned, it's it's most of the time it's pretty good. You know, publishers are also just looking for good stuff. I think most of the larger direct-to-market publishers are the ones who approach comics in that way, who think about a comic pitch yeah. or something that they're going to publish as something that could easily be optioned. And even now, you have a lot of publishers that have their own department that's responsible for doing just that, that takes books that they're publishing or about to publish and then starts sending those out to producers right. and, you know, different different people in Hollywood or whatever to option it and hopefully sell it to make it into a show. Which is honestly probably becoming more important to do as a publisher. I mean, we're just talking about Fanagraphics changing their logo before we got on mic. And part of the thing that they're saying with changing their logo is that they're dropping the books from the Fanagraphics name. So, they're just Fanagraphics now. They're not Fanagraphics books, you know. Yeah, who wants books? Yeah, right. One one thing I want to say too, I think it's possible that artists are leaning more narrative now than uh, maybe a little more experimental. But, you know, there's a lot of talk about the uh, the sort of prestige era of TV that we're in. So I could see something where just like the environment that we're in as creators is like very heavily saturated with narrative forward work. And, uh, you know, you don't make work in a vacuum. So that stuff rubs off on you one way or another. I know I went from being like a weirdo experimental guy into trying to work more narratively, but I feel like that's also just me like growing up a little bit. Yeah, I'm in the same boat, you know, with this new stuff that I'm working on right now. I was always like, my work before, I feel like it was always really short and really, it had a narrative, but it wasn't anything that was necessarily strong. It was kind of just little glimpses into, you know, a person's life for a few pages. And with this new stuff, I'm trying to put more writing and dialogue into it, as well as, you know, making sure that the comic flows well from a visual standpoint. But I do think that's just strengthening your chops and you're able to tackle a uh, bigger project that has more of a narrative. Yeah, I think some of that is also just when you're younger, you think I'm going to reinvent the medium. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to come in, I'm going to change everything. But then as you get older, you maybe appreciate just what the medium already is and try and fit yourself into that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Exactly. Yep. that's I was going to say I I fit that narrative as well. Totally. I I mean, also, there's still plenty of people that do non-narrative Rizo stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I didn't see any kind of like drop off in that really. 
Yeah, same. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, you go to any small press show, at least here in Chicago, or any zine fest, you're still going to see tons of that. Yeah. Yeah, and poetry comics are fucking cool sometimes, so I don't know what the beef is. Well, and I mean, like, and you look at something, you know, I don't know if, like, you know, I, the poetry aspect of that question, maybe I haven't seen that material. I just assumed it was, like, art comics, you know, like, reso-printed comics that don't yeah. really focus on, they kind of just break that traditional rule of being a comic, you know, so I don't I don't know. I didn't really see any kind of poetry stuff. Not to say it didn't happen, because, like I said, I've only been doing shows for, like, the last half of the decade. There are a few people, that I, I, I'm forgetting the name specifically, and we probably don't even need to be specific. But there are a few people probably three or four years ago that were bigger names doing non-narrative, very poetic stuff than I think you see now more publicly. But uh, I I agree with you. I think, you know, boots on the ground, it, it doesn't look that different to me. Yeah, if anything, it just is more of a testament to or what comics can be and what yeah. they are. Because, I mean, you know, you go to, you know, you mentioned SPX specifically, you go to SPX and you see those. I feel like there's like the type of comics at SPX that I don't want to sound like I'm gatekeeping, but it doesn't seem like an SPX brand comic. It seems like something that you would try yeah. to take to like a C2E2 or a, you know, a bigger Wizard World type show or a Comic-Con. Yeah, you start to see a lot of fan art over there, too. I'm not really sure what the S- SPX brand even yeah, is. Yeah, so it's, you know, I feel like it's a really big show that is just comics-focused, uh, as opposed to, you yeah. know, other media like TV and movies and video games and so forth. Right, fucking toys yeah. and shit. Yeah, and I mean, I would say that a lot of the newer faces that I see at these shows are usually the ones that are doing narrative stuff anyway. Yeah, And, Mm. you know, kind of going back to uh, what we were talking about before, how like, you know, you eventually grow as an artist to be able to tackle something with more of a narrative. It almost seems like there's a lot of younger people that are also just coming in doing long ass books that I see at SPX as well. Uh, So, you know, long ass books. (laughs) (laughs) Long books. I I wonder if he's I wonder if he's talking about like paper rodeo stuff being like SPX brand because they were kind of that East Coast weirdo thing for a while yeah maybe i mean that would be a little a little ahead of our time the the funny thing is that there was also some criticism about cake here in chicago becoming Mm -hmm. too much like spx yeah but i don't know what version of spx they're referring to if we're gonna you know talk about the changes that have occurred with spx in general so well and to be honest i mean i i've only tabled a cake last year um but outside of like the table fees, I think SPX is a good show. So what was the big difference that, you know, set Cake apart from SPX? I mean, this might be kind of getting off on a tangent, but. No, I mean, it was just the content of the shows, the type of creators, the type of work that you're seeing, you know. Oh, okay. Like, I, I, I think the, yeah, the first few years of Cake were like really specifically regional too. It was a lot more Midwest and Chicago people. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, you started seeing a lot more East Coast people coming in maybe three or four years into the show. Yeah, and I think that criticism might be referring to, like, a specific style choice when it comes to narrative comics. Just, like, very cute, very straightforward, sure. simple. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Something else, too, that that occurred to me in, in talking about Paper Rodeo is uh, doing weird shit like that well is really, really, really hard. And so, I think sometimes part of the reason that you don't see as much weird stuff like that would be, uh, you know, either people aren't doing it well, so people aren't talking about it, or there's always just sort of like a, a lightning in the bottle moment when it does happen. And, uh, you know, you can't really manufacture that. Yeah. Anyway, Michael, don't ask us a question ever again. <laughs> Uh, you're now banned from asking any question of any kind no i'm kidding but there's a good question actually i'm sure we could do a whole episode just about that i actually responded to it i was like good question (laughs) yeah he knows now all right Yeah. (laughs) yeah all right well i think that about does it for questions we will take a quick break and then when we come back we're gonna have josh pettinger with us And we're going to get into the nitty gritty of their work and output. Thanks to Pete for uh, stopping by and joining us. And uh, (laughs) after this episode, make sure to uh, (laughs) check out the Autoptic 2020 programming that will be uploaded, honestly, the same day this is up. Yeah. Thanks, Pete. Yeah. Good to be back. All right. You know where the door is. Get out. Okay. (laughs) All right. All right. We'll be right back. Can you name 
in the truck with four-wheel drive. Smells like a steak and seats 35. Canyonero. Canyonero. Well, it goes real slow with the hammer down. It's the country pride truck endorsed by a clown. Canyonero. Canyonero. The Federal Highway Commission has ruled the Canyon Arrow unsafe for highway or city driving. Mr. Surfer, have you ever considered propane as an alternative energy source for that board of yours? With a little retooling, I could get it to work. Tell you what I'm going to do. Being that you're my neighbor and I like you, I'm going to give you the new neighbor discount and a free t-shirt. So what do you say? Take a ride on the Cosmic Tide on an all-new Silver Surfer next as Fox Kids Heads for the Hills continues. Just think, with repeat business like that, I could eventually be supplying propane galaxy-wide. Now, back to our program. And welcome back to episode 32 of Gutter Boys. Uh, we are here still with Josh Pettinger. So, Josh, uh, you are—you uh, just recently moved to Los Angeles, but you are from England originally. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm from a, a small island off the south coast of England called the Isle of Wight. It's like really small, 8 by 23 miles long. I uh, moved to Chicago when I was um, 23, and then I just moved to L.A. a month ago. So you were here in Chicago prior? Yeah, uh, I think so. Twenty-three to thirty-one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. What uh, what hood were you in? Logan Square. Logan. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. Where are you guys both based? Uh, well, I'm based out of Chicago in Pilsen, and Cam oh, yeah. is based out of Louisville. Yeah, yeah Kentucky. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, growing up, you've been doing well. Let's back up a little bit. Off air, we were talking about your uh, one man anthology series called Goiter. The first issue came out in 2014. You said, and then uh, number two through five have been released between 2018 and the present day. You are about to put out issue five with uh, Tinto Press. Before Goiter, were you working on comics? You know, how long have you been doing comics? You know, why comics? So I've been making comics since I was uh, maybe seven. I used to have this, uh, it was basically it was Beavis and Homer Simpson comic. I did like a, a couple issues of them in, in school. And I've just always been drawing comics. But it's kind of weird because I, I, like, I, there was nowhere for me to buy comics. There was no, so I had no point of reference except for Simpsons comics. And then Orion and Manhunter, which I found in this store once. So basically I, I didn't really know what comics were, but I was, I was drawing them. So I ended up making animation and like, Focus on animation, but then I, I discovered uh, kind of like independent comics when I went to college in London. But why comics? I don't know. Just like sit at home and control the, this little world, I guess. I don't know. Hell yeah. So what, we're growing up, you know, you mentioned it was the Simpsons comics. Like, uh, was it because you mentioned earlier, you know, you lived on the Isle of Wight, which was like smaller. So was the distribution of comics just, you know, were there not any comic stores or, you know, where were you getting your comics from? Like uh, you mentioned it was the Simpsons only. So was there just nothing else that interested you or was there just no content available for you? No, there was, there was no comic book shops. There was um, you could buy the Simpsons comics in, like I guess, the equivalent of a Walgreens um, just in like a grocery store. And then there was one store called Musical Sounds, which sold, it had like pornography in the back um, and then band t-shirts in the front. And then he just had this giant box of just Orion comics and Manhunter comics. So I'd buy them for like 20 pence or something. It sounds like I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I didn't. Um, but yeah, that was like my only reference for what comics were until I was maybe 20 years old. When I went to Forbidden Planet in London, it was like a big comic book shop in London. So you mentioned, you know, going to that shop. Did you go in like seeking certain comics out like that maybe you'd seen online or did you just kind of pick and choose while you were there? 
No, it was just I just I just went in there. I was just walking around. I walked in. And it was like Dan Pousse was the one I bought. That I was like drawn to. Like I remember it as this moment of walking into the comic book shop and it just like zooming in on that one comic and there's like a bright light around it. But you know that obviously didn't happen. <laughs> it's just how I remember it. But yeah, it's just like I bought that one Dan Pousse book, and then since then it's just like obsessively buying comics and making comics. And you know it's kind of interesting because you know art wise I don't really you know I I can see a lot of Klaus's influence in your work in the sense of somewhat on the storytelling beats. You know, each issue of Goiter is a self-contained story. Some of them also have little stories yeah. within them as well. A uh, little, you know, single page stories, you know, a couple pages here and there. Yeah, but usually one of them yeah, is, it's, there's always one long, long story that anchors every every book down. When you're, you know, I kind of wanted to talk about that because your books, when you read them, you're just an excellent storyteller. They're just presented in nice packages, you know, just wrapped up with a nice bow. You wonder where these characters are going to go, but also for the moment that you've spent with them as a reader, in my opinion, you feel fulfilled in the sense of, you know, that was a good comic. That was a good story. You know, you tie up all the loose ends. Well, like that to me is a sign of good writing. You know, you're writing and drawing the books. So are you writing these, you know, way in advance? What's your process like when you're actually, you know, starting a comic? Yeah, so I don't, I, I don't feel like I really spend that much time actually writing. Like, I'll have a, a small idea, and I'll just let that exist in my head for maybe a month or two. You know, there's like, you have moments when uh, little strands kind of come together, and then uh, the point where I feel like I have a, like a full story in my head, I'll just go straight to uh, paper, just drawing, like penciling. So there's, a, there's like minimal writing, and usually when I get like maybe three or four pages into the pencil, I'll just write down a list of like, everything that needs to happen in the story and in, in, in like parentheses next to it it's just like two pages like this part of the story will last two pages or three pages so just so just writing like three letter sentences will be like he gets shot or something like that that's like the the most writing i'll do so it's kind of like so the actual drawing of it is all improvised with just these uh like plot points in my head so when you say the drawings improvised are you not thumbnailing Never. No, never. No, I just go straight to <laughs> straight to the, the page. Do you at least you know thumbnail that. out? Because yeah. um, one thing about Goiter as well is you did issue two and three and the new one five at standard size, and then you did number four at that uh, magazine size, like a Love and Rockets type size. And I yeah, feel yeah. like your page layouts play to the size of your books, so you're not even like laying that out, like the panel structure or anything like that. No, no, no. I'll, I'll just like, I'll know what, what happens. So I'll, I'll be like, I know this, uh, I have two pages for this to happen. So I know what happens on the first panel and the last panel of that small section. And I'll just kind of build it around that. But yeah, there's no thumbnailing. Or, well, I've tried thumbnailing. It just, um, like I lose all interest in the story. I lose like motivation to make the comic. Yeah. So real quick, when did you move from the UK to the States in Chicago? That would have been uh, 2014, maybe, yeah, 2014. Okay, so around the time when you started Goiter. Yeah, that's exactly like, that was, uh, I, I did that in the first year I was here. And so were you still making comics prior to Goiter while you were in the UK still? Yeah, nothing, like, I didn't, I didn't put anything out. It was just like false starts and like trying to make comics and because it's like, after I bought that damn Pussy book, I was like trying to make my own version of 8-Ball, I guess. But it was just, okay. it was just all false starts, really. Gotcha. And have you noticed any sort of differences in terms of the comic scene where you came out of or sort of local to you versus here in, in the States, specifically in Chicago, since you haven't really spent too much time in LA yet? Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. I, didn't, uh, I wasn't aware of any comic scene in England. Every, everything I got into was all American. It was all American comics. Oh. And I just like, I okay. wasn't, I know there's like the London Zine Symposium I would go to, which is, you know, it's like a very small version of, you know, it's like a festival. But I, I wasn't involved in the comic scene at all in England, so I still don't really know how big it is or how, you know, what's going on there, but I know there's no brow. That's about the extent of my knowledge of English comics. Right, right. And Nobrow kind of, they kind of went under fire for... It was uh, oh, the fact gosh, that I think it? the uh, owner is like a trust fund kid and they were paying really low amounts to nothing at all sometimes. Right, his father's yeah, a billionaire, something right? like that. Something like that. I think so, yeah. I, I think there was also something to do with some former employees there that 
claimed a you know potential racism in the workplace type and of deal. Wasn't there something that was like they were seeking out certain publishers and like saying that we can't let them corner the market or something? There was some kind of weird email that was going around. Yeah, I think that was like the owner saying they they wanted to crush the competition, basically. You're right. Yeah, something like that. So yeah, good stuff. I mean, in I think No Brow does really great job with printing. But, you know, I haven't done work for them, but I haven't heard good things. So as far as working from them based off all the stuff that was coming out on Twitter. Yeah, I think they release really nice, well-made books. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like how they function as a company, it's not so good. Yeah. Alrighty. But anyway, sorry. I mean, it's two it's two worlds colliding. It's like the the billionaire capitalist and then like completely unprofitable art. Books. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, if you have those two worlds colliding, it's not gonna be <laughs> it's not gonna be fun for anyone. It's a that is a weird move to get into comics, to start a publisher and get into art comics. And that's what I would do if I hit the lottery. I mean, you could just do hundreds of thousands of other things yeah. if you're already a bill yeah, I don't know. That seems really odd. I mean it's one thing, Cam, like if you're going to start a publisher, right, if you had the money and the resources, you start a publisher publisher, you're not going to send out an email saying, look, all these other little shit show competition <laughs> publishers, we need to fucking kill them right now. Right? Like, I don't see that happening. So, I don't know. It just seems like you still have the predatory capitalist attitude, but then you are wanting to invest that into comics, which it doesn't mm-hmm. make money. So, what's... Th- like, what's the get here? You know, like, am I missing something? I guess maybe with the funds, possibly you could be like, hey, let me try to make comics accessible and uh, we can print tons of copies so everybody can buy them. But the thing is, is nobody's going to buy them um, outside of the right. built-in market that's already there. But, you know. Strange, yeah. strange, strange. Josh, I did actually have a question. You know, we were talking about earlier the format of your issue. Goiter 5, which is your new comic that's about to come out, is actually going to be published by Tinto Press. Yeah. The other issues of Goiter yeah. are all self-published. Now, you did return to the standard comic book size for number five after doing that magazine size issue for four. Was that just something experimental? Do you like working at the standard size better? It's like me getting too big for my boots, I think. I think I drew maybe a third of the issue, like standard comic book size. And then um, I think I had like a real block on that comic. And so I went and re- went back and redrew it at a different size. Just just changing the size just kind of reset my brain on that story. But yeah, that's basically the only reason that was a different size. Well, and uh, and I actually reread everything today. Oh, cool. Yeah, issue three, you actually wrote in the back, you know, a little bit of a blurb about yourself. Yeah. An interesting quote that I actually took from that. You wrote that something along the lines of the comics are not autobiographical, but they are. Yeah. And I think that the personalities that you give your characters, I think it's you could tell it comes from a real place. And me knowing you online, you know, the stand up comedy elements. I know that uh, if I'm not mistaken, your partner uh, is actually a stand up comedian, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're taking bits of real life. Is that what you were kind of alluding to when you said that it's not autobiographical, but it is? Because, I mean, some of your stories are definitely, you know, fantasy in some elements. You know, you're dealing with like the interdimensional travel, you know, the character that was just a floating head. So when I'm like drawing the story, it feels like I'm making this complete fiction. But if I go back and read a book, like a comic I've just, you know, made maybe six months ago, I can pinpoint every single thing. It's like, oh, that's because this happened in my life and this is because this, you know. So that's kind of what I mean. But it's also, the story will always start a little more autobiographical. Like, for example, um, in Goiter 3, Wendy Bread, and that's uh, it's Goiter 4, uh, Sally Talman. That was just supposed to be a, like a, a small story about uh, working in a restaurant, being a server, and like you're about to turn 30, which is, you know, what was happening in my life. And like feeling like this isn't a long-term career, you know, this is, uh, it's going to end badly if I stay in this job. And then, uh, like, that, it, feel, it doesn't feel so interesting to me, so I just uh, add all these, like, wild elements around it, and then it becomes almost completely not biographical at all. And that's when I go back and, you know, read, reread it later, and everything starts to feel like it is more biographical again. I don't know if that makes sense. No, for sure, for sure. We kind of bring up, you know, auto-bio on this show a lot. What's your stance on it? Just, you know, personally wondering. Like in comics, um, like I'm sure somebody's done it well at some point. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's now now my opinion is is too much now. It's um, it's just it's never the most interesting people making that. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, 
for sure. So I know that a lot of these stories are standalone. Do you have plans to make these characters interact with one another or is each issue just going to be its own thing? Like, uh, what are your plans with the series going forward? I know five's not out yet. I got a copy yeah. from, there were some advanced copies from, uh, I forget the store that was carrying it. But so some people. Uh, Wick, Wick Shop. Wick Shop, yeah. So some people have yeah. read the book. I think the Kickstarter for Tinto Press, I think those backers may have gotten some copies as well. Are you going to continue, Goiter? Are there plans for that? I always think, like, I'm working on this comic right now. I have, like, two pages left to ink. And it's it's going to be, um like, uh, serialized to make, a, like, basically a graphic novel, trying to make a graphic novel. And I'm, I'm probably going to put each issue under Goita. But I like the idea of just everything I ever make is just all Goita. Like, I die in, you know, 40 years or whatever, and it's just 40 issues of Goita, you know. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So it's going to be pretty much like the eight ball model, you know, where everything comes yeah. out under that. Yeah, I like that. I, I th- but, but even even longer stories, just serializing them them in Goita first. Right. So the the new project that you mentioned that you've got a couple pages left, like uh, how long is that project? Well, it'll be 32 pages for the first issue. And it's going to... It's, it's probably going to be four 32-page issues. Okay, so it's going to be like a to-be-continued type deal that's going to run over the next four issues? Yeah, okay. but then, but like, I'm not, I'm not sure about that even because, again, I like the idea of Goya being self-contained, like you were saying earlier. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm debating that. Which which one's more important to me? Is just everything being under one name or keeping Goya as this certain thing that is just small self-contained stories? For sure, yeah. And I was doing that for a while. Like I put out, I planned on doing everything under a book called Vacation and I did two issues. I'm going to do another issue, but my last book was called 20 and I just didn't feel that it had the same vibe that I wanted to go for. So I ended up changing the title, but almost regrettably so. But you know, yeah. so yeah, I feel your conflict there. Speaking of Goiter, where did that name come from? Um, I don't know if you, do you guys know like Chris Morris, like Brass Eye in the Day to Day. It's no. like a, it's a, a British comedy show. It was just a, like on the special features. These these two guys, Adam and Joe, like British comedians, did a parody of that show on the special features, and they called it Goiter instead of Jam. So it's just is it just taken off of that? Oh, okay. Yeah, I just like the name. But the only the, the only thing I, I kind of hate that name now is if I try and Google myself, like, I have real body oh. horror problems. Like just looking at a Goiter will make me feel oh, sick. God. So. <laughs> I can't, I can't Google myself and read reviews. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard of that show. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, it's good. Jam. You mentioned, you know, you moved straight to Chicago from uh, England. Chicago, we talk about it on here. JB's base there arguably has the best comic scene in America right now. Yeah, probably. So when you relocated here, did you have any experiences in the scene? What was that like for you? Because you went from, you know, kind of growing up in a place that didn't have comics to possibly one of the meccas of, you know, independent comics. That, that, that was like kind of deciding factors of me going all in on comics. The fact that there was a comic scene there. Um, for my expense of it was basically just uh, like drinking drawers of Alex Knoll. I like meeting some people through him, but yeah, I'm not like I wasn't that that active in the scene. I'm not you know that sociable really. Like I, I knew like a lot of the, the people making comics there, but not not that close. But there's some like great stuff there. I mean, I never like tabled a cake or anything while I was eating fest. Well, so, and you recently relocated to LA. Was that comics motivated? I know you've recently been posting on your Instagram. We were talking about it earlier, the uh, animation clips you've been working on, you know, out in California. A lot of comic artists are able to make, you know, a living working in animation. Was that, you know, are you planning on trying to dip your toes into that? Is that just something that you're working on right now? Partly like, you know, if there's anything I can do to make a living from art would be nice. Yeah, it was it was COVID related, the move. Um, my girlfriend's from Los Angeles, so we moved to be closer to her family. It wasn't a comics decision. I mean, the, the ideal place to make comics is obviously somewhere where the rent is $300 a month. And uh, that's not LA. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is not like that in LA. <laughs> yeah. Are you living in LA proper or LA County? Hollywood. No, I'm a. Uh, oh wow. No, I'm not Hollywood. Uh, Highland Park, which is like a. Uh, <laughs> yeah, close no, to I, Hollywood. I it's, it's it's LA proper. I'm in the city. There's helicopters okay. flying yeah. overhead every day. It's like uh, boys in the hood. Yeah, a little bit. LA's great, man. There's uh, there's a lot of great talent out there in terms of animation and comics, and a lot of overlap, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm like hoping to get more active in the comic scene here than I was in Chicago, but so far I haven't been able to venture past my my neighborhood. 
because of the coronavirus. Right. Yeah. Hopefully when things calm down, you'll be able to do that. And maybe you can do some of the local shows there because they do have some great shows. Yeah, for sure. I know yeah, Comics yeah. Art Los Angeles is good. LA Zine Fest is good. And I know that, you know, there's like Long Beach and San Diego shows as well uh, that are within, you know, yeah. driving distance. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Goiter was self-published until this recent issue we mentioned, which was uh, put out by Tinto Press. Did they approach you or are you just tired of self-publishing? No. Um, so, Jeff Alford who runs a wig shop web shop, which is like a, your listeners should buy stuff from there. It's just like a really good art book shop online. He actually, I think it was a dink in Denver, took my comic over to Ted from Tinto Press and was just like, you should like read this guy. Like he's been my biggest supporter for years. So it was just like somebody else gave them my comic. Oh, and then Tinto reached out to you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So is this just a one-off project or are you going to team up with them for the next issue? Yeah, hopefully. Um, yeah, if this one does okay, they're, they're going to publish the next one. It'd be nice to have like a, a base for Goiter to be. But we'll see how, you know, how this sells with um, coronavirus. And the, like it was going to be in a few comic book shops, but it got accepted into Diamond. So, you know, kind of higher hopes than usual for that comic. Yeah, I mean, anybody could technically walk into a shop and order that. You know, that's hell of a district yeah. you know it's, we should talk diamond on here but you know if they want to distribute you it's ultimately a win-win for the creator because it gets you into as many shops as possible maybe because uh, after like was it dc left them are they going to be the same are they going to have the same uh, reach anymore i don't know yeah yeah they probably i think will. so i honestly i mean it's kind of early but i think that dc's probably in the honeymoon phase of their uh new relationship with whatever distribution they're using i would not be surprised right. to see dc go back i mean they've left before I, I, I don't know about this stuff. This is my, a blind spot of mine. He told me it got into Diamond and I had to Google what Diamond was. So <laughs> Awesome. So what are you guys working on? <laughs> All right, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, I actually, uh, I uh, well, I mean, I feel like this should be centered around you. So I don't want to. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, I came up with a title for my book today and it's completely written. I think I'm going to call it Deconstruction. It's coming out from Really Easy Press, which is the same publisher that JB's book is coming from as well. Deconstruction. Yeah, decon that's, that's yeah. what I'm... Uh, it's just a word that's stuck with me for a few days. Like I like one yeah. word titles for my books. I'm picturing flames on the cover and like a uh, construction tape, <laughs> <laughs> a hard hat, yeah, a maybe somewhere. Oh, no, a question that I actually had. Uh, JB and I are really big wrestling fans. And uh, in issue four yeah. of Goiter, I mean, it's essentially a story about a family. Uh, the father is a wrestler who's on the yeah. road, hardly sees the family. Do you keep up with wrestling? Is it something that was a part of your past? Because, I mean, to be honest, the uh, stories seem pretty... You mentioned earlier in the questions that you don't do much research for your work. It's just stuff yeah. you kind of know. And the uh, story in issue four wasn't just, oh, let me just... Make Make this guy a wrestler like it seemed like the lifestyle of being a wrestler you know the wrestler character you know has a one night stand with a fan yeah. before going home you know this is all like kind of inside baseball for what a wrestler's life was like on the road at one point in time so just for you know the show jb and i being wrestling fans are you a wrestling fan or so i haven't watched wrestling since i was about probably uh like wwe smackdown uh the game came out so was that first Mac, so PlayStation 1? Yeah, um, late yeah. 90s or early 2001. I'm, yeah, I'm 31 now. I don't watch wrestling. <laughs> but, yeah, it's like, I think the Beyond the Mat documentary, I watched that when I was really young, and that's just it's like one of those things that implants itself in your head, yeah. which is always there, and it's, I guess that's where it came out. But, so it's kind of yeah. like the storyline almost follows like the Jake the Snake stuff from Beyond the Mat, really. Kind of, yeah. I, I did picture that main character is basically Jake the Snake Roberts, yeah. Okay. Just a, a broken man. Yeah, I didn't mean to insult rest, adult wrestling fan. Oh, um, no, no. We, we know we're lepers. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you all had uh, World of Sport, right? That was airing on TV quite a, I don't know, like, when was that? The 70s and 80s? Oh, is that like Giant Haystacks? Yes, yes. Yeah, I know. Well, there was a bunch of different wrestlers there. But yeah. yeah. That's all I know is Giant Haystacks. It's kind of a, it's kind of a punchline in England. Yeah. <laughs> So, do you go back and visit England, uh, or have you been back since you left? I have once uh, since I moved here. It's expensive to go there. Yeah, really. Okay, you have to take off work, and yeah. So, yeah. are any of your readers, you know, uh, are they English, or you know, residing in Europe, or are a lot of your readers here in America? I get uh, when I like Italians and the French. I'm actually working on a French translation of uh, collected Goita two, three, and four right now. Nice. Are you, yeah, are, uh, are you self-publishing that or is some, I mean, I don't know if you can even talk about that, but is somebody going to publish that for you? There's like a small publisher, uh, Zine Panic. Oh, okay. 
they're going to do it. Yeah, it's like a, it's going to be like a really small run. But I'm just hand lettering the whole thing right now. It's kind of a nightmare actually. But I have to Photoshop it into the speech bubbles, which is you know French is much longer than English. So well, and that's something that I don't think we've ever actually covered on the show is uh, translating your work into another language. So. Did yeah. the uh, publisher translate that for you, or did you have to do that yourself? No, they uh, they translated it and uh, sent it to me, and I'm just so apparently in France. Like I wanted to just use a make, like make a font of my handwriting, but apparently in France they're real uh, puritanical about that. Yeah, and rightfully so. But yes, yeah, so I have to hand letter this whole thing. Yeah, and I, I think France actually is like the only place where comics are considered high art still. Yeah. So that makes sense. They would want you to hand letter that material. Yeah, yeah. More of a purist culture there, it seems. Um, it seems like there's a really big respect for comics there, which is the dream. If only America was like that, but you know. Yeah, that was one of the things. I, uh, just before I got really into comics, I went to uh, Angoulême, not during the festival, but they have a big museum there like original Crumb and Klaus and Chris Ware and it's like some Paul Horn Shamir. That, that, that was like one of the big introductions of comics for me was seeing the original art in Angoulême. Yeah, it's a festival I've always wanted to check out. Uh, I don't think my work will yeah, ever be to. good enough to uh, table there, but Same. I would love to go. Well, hey, maybe for you've got a French publisher. I mean, that's a, it's a big step in that direction. Yeah, that would be, uh, be nice to be paid to go to France. Yeah, of course. I mean, maybe one day you can get the uh, R. Crumb treatment and just trade nine sketchbooks for a Via over there. So, you know. Yeah, that's insane. I would love to know the actual financials of that, like how much the house was. I know my my, gran my, my grandma bought a house in France for uh, like a couple acres for what would be a studio apartment here. So I think that was part of that deal. Okay, yeah. I wonder if the guy who got those sketchbooks feels fleeced uh, by the deal. 100%. Especially, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. Crumb still publishes like his complete sketchbook, so Crumb's still getting paid for the material. I mean, it's cool to own originals, but I couldn't even fathom trading, like being a fan of somebody to be like, yes, here's my house. <laughs> Please give me your sketchbook. It's like once you've, once you've looked at them, it's like, you, you know, you look at them a couple times, and then, then what do you do with them? You can't live in them, but you have a house. Right. Another thing that I actually wanted to bring up with you, talking about your original art, I actually recently messaged you, I guess within the past few weeks, about possibly buying some pages from you. And uh, you re yeah. you responded with, well, a lot of my pages don't look like the final product. Uh, you mentioned that yeah. you do like a lot of cleanup. So are you digitally, are you just scanning this stuff in and fixing a lot of it in Photoshop? Well, like what I mean by that is just like, I get to a certain point in the comic where finishing it, if I don't speed up the process, I'm never going to finish it. So I, I just don't fill in the blacks. And my comics have a lot of like black in there, so it's just um, it's just they it just looks really plain the original art. So maybe I shouldn't be uh, talking people out buying my art. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm still interested, so I'll shoot you a message, you know, after All the right. show, and you know, we can figure something out there. Cool. So you've been in LA for a couple months now, is that right? Uh, just under a month. What was it like moving during all this? Yeah, so we you took know. a U-Haul. My girlfriend and I drove a U-Haul from uh, Chicago through Nebraska, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, and into California. It's pretty. It's pretty wild. I mean, it's like this is. I, I'd never taken a road trip like that. So it's like this kind of thing you dream of, and you you know you always want to do something like that. And then you just reminded constantly, it's, these aren't normal times. Although there's a lot of places between Chicago and Los Angeles where they are trying to convince themselves this is normal times, which is scary. Yeah. scary. There's like people in Nebraska playing, like just sitting there playing slot machines in a gas station with no mask on. <laughs> yeah. Terrifying. It's like this virus is never going to go away because of these people playing slot machines in a gas station in Nebraska. Yeah. The, the death drive of your average American is really stunning. Yeah, yeah. So have you uh, been able to work since moving? I know moving is kind of a hassle. Are you? I know you mentioned you were almost finished with the current project. You're on a couple pages away. Have you gotten into any kind of work schedule since moving, or has it been kind of a weird adjustment moving your workspace across the country? No, I've been. I've like back to this uh, like the first month during the pandemic where I just couldn't make any comics, and I'm back to that again. So I've had like two pages to ink on this issue, and I can put you know I can publish it like the day it's finished, but for the month. I haven't been able to finish those last two pages, but I've just been animating, so I feel like I'm still doing something creative and not just sitting here doing nothing. Actually, it was it was this it was like MS Hartness on this podcast talking about uh, that was kind of one of the things that got me out of that original funk 
You know, it's like that kind of harsh, why are you wasting your time doing nothing? Pull yourself over your bootstraps, that kind of yeah, speech. Yeah, she, uh, she definitely got through to me with that too. That uh, Yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I was definitely not working at all. And then I had to start thinking about comics again after that conversation with them, which is great. Sometimes you need that. <laughs> Yeah, after you've been publicly shamed, yeah, uh, tough love approach you got there. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, yeah, that kind of thing worked. Just like the fear of this thing happening and then having nothing to show for it, and it's like I'm never going to get these months again to just do just art full time. Right? Yeah, you got to start working a full time job, everything, you know, and yeah, I'm basically never going to get that again. So the fear of like looking back and thinking I've squandered that. Which is like, you know, you feel guilty saying that, but it's because, you know, people are dying everywhere. But I mean, just on a personal level, that's kind of how I felt. Right. No, absolutely. I relate. I mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, despite the world seeming like it's going to fall apart in America, at least, you know, from a selfish standpoint, this has been a godsend in a way for a lot of cartoonists, I would hope, to be able to actually just create things and get paid for them is nice. Usually that's not how it goes in comics. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people who are like convincing themselves that they're full-time artists right now. I mean, it's it's nice. It's nice to uh, feel like that for a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, this was the first time that a full-time artist could actually file for unemployment as well, you know, if you're an independent contractor. So it's a silver lining in a horrible situation. Yeah. A lot of your work, though, you know, we're talking about your move to L.A. A lot of your work, I could tell the buildings and whatnot look just like Chicago. Yeah. Are you planning on keeping that in the books? Like, I'm not going to say that your stories are set in Chicago, but it looks like Chicago. If you walk the streets and the neighborhoods of Chicago, a lot of the housing and so forth looks like that. Are you planning See, I on... Think like, so, yeah. So Alex Knoll said it once. He said that the backgrounds I draw look like America drawn by someone who's never been to America. So it's nice that you say that it actually does look like Chicago, which is what I've been trying to do. Well, also, though, <laughs> Alex lives there and I visit three times a year. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But it looks like Chicago to me. Like what I see in Chicago, that's what it looks like. I mean, I've just gone, it's the flatness of Chicago lends itself to cartooning. Mm-hmm. Everything you can do with just a single ruler, you know, you can uh, line everything up. With LA, it's a bit difficult drawing. Just drawing a hill, actually, has been difficult for me. But yeah, it's hard to like see the palm trees everywhere and like all these like this cool uh, architecture and not want to draw it. So probably, you know, seep in there. But I mean, the, the comic I'm working on at the moment is set in a giant Amazon work warehouse 200 years from now. And that's the only thing I'm going to work on comics-wise for the foreseeable future. So, you know, I'm not drawing LA right now. And do you have a timeline? I mean, I know number five technically isn't out, but do you have a timeline on when you anticipate putting that out? Possibly 2021? As soon as I get the motivation to finish those last two pages, I'll probably just, I'll send it to Tinto. And if he, you know, if they don't want it, I'll self-publish it. I like the, the great thing about self-publishing is you can, you can do it the week you finish it, you know. With Tinto, it's been a bit more waiting for months for it to come out. Not complaining, though. But. So it just depends. The way Tinto did that, though, was they kickstarted like a group of books. Was that right? Yeah, yeah. It was like yeah, a bunch of people. Some really good stuff. Jonathan Bayless. Yeah. Charlie the Greco. Fortunately, the campaign was obviously funded. And yeah. I don't know if this is like a question that, you know, you can answer. And if you feel uncomfortable, you know, we'll cut it. But if the Kickstarter wasn't successful, were you just going to self-publish Goiter 5? Or what was the plan there? Yeah, I would have I just put it out myself. I even, uh, I wanted to like cancel the Kickstarter just because it was at the beginning of this pandemic. And I, I was like, is this going to look really terrible uh, asking people for money as soon as, you know, everybody just lost their job. So, yeah, I've been like, I would have just self-published it. Well, and I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when the Kickstarter started, when you were promoting it, you did have remorse about it. You were actually openly yeah, talking like, about like, I know I you like, people shouldn't throw money to this right now. But. Yeah, it was actually, it was like days of anxiety of like, is this the right thing? Is this going to be like, I don't know, there's like a, this would go viral as just like the begging sad cartoonists who like are begging during a pandemic for money. I don't know. That was the fear, but it turned out people were like really supportive, especially at that beginning there was like a feeling of, is this the end of comics and the end of small press? And is this the end of you know any kind of small independent art? That was like a real fear at the beginning of April. So I think people were really receptive to like supporting small press comics. Mm-hmm. I've never done a Kickstarter for a personal book, but I know people have done it with someone else, you know, putting that together. And it was a Tinto Press, I guess, project, if you will. Did that take pressure off of you because you're like, oh, I don't really have to worry about this? I mean, I know you were promoting it or did it actually like make you feel like, you know, you had more pressure on you to help them succeed? Does that question make sense? You know, like uh, as far as. Yeah, like, like it was nice that uh, it was just completely out of my hands. 
you know, I didn't have to really do anything except post about it every couple of days. There was just the fear of embarrassment of it not, you know, if it reached like $20 after a month. That was really the, like the extent of the worry. But mostly it's just nice to have somebody else do all the work, really. Right. Putting your yeah. book out. And before you mentioned you didn't do any shows in Chicago, really. Have you done comic shows? I've never seen you at a show. Yeah, so I've just done Ice Cream in Iowa twice. That's really it. I was actually, this year before the pandemic hit, I was supposed to do, you know, Autoptic Cake and Zine Fest. I think, was it Grand Rapids? I think I was, I was supposed to do a bunch of them for Goiter 5. But yeah, I've only really done the Ice Cream because it's only recently that I've had enough stuff to put on a table at shows. Mm-hmm. Is, I've never actually heard of that show. Do you like that show? Yeah, it's really good. It's, um, it's uh, Dave Dugan runs it out of uh, Iowa City. Uh, it's in conjunction with some big book festival. I can't remember the name of it. But like, yeah, it's like a, a lot of really cool stuff there. It's like definitely a, a much smaller show, but yeah, I like it. Hell yeah. And you get a lot of, like, a lot of people come in because it's just that big book festival that's at the same time as... Just going from, you know, not tabling so much to having a lot of shows lined up this year, was that something that you did on your own or was that something that you were doing with Tinto because they were putting the book out? Like, were you going to table with them or were you going to table as an individual? No, it was mostly, uh, for most of them, it was going to be me and Evan Salazar oh, okay, cool. sharing a table. So it was all just like us doing it. Yeah, awesome. Hopefully next year that'll happen so I can finally meet you all in real life. Do you think do you think there's going to be festivals in 2021? I'm thinking 2022. Uh, I think 2021 is possible. I don't think it's out of the picture. Yeah, because, I mean, they're saying the vaccination should come in the first quarter of next year. So I'm assuming that, really? that that's what they're saying. I mm. think the trials are actually going on over in England right now, and they're showing some pretty good success from what I've read. Yeah, my mom yeah. got a uh, test in the mail. It was like a test that you do, like, like a pregnancy test where you just do it there and then at home. So they've, mm-hmm. you know, how far ahead are they Right, I guess, you know. Right. Yeah. I think it takes like eight to 12 months for human trials. So yeah. We'll know soon enough, I guess. And I don't know if I'd want to do the festivals in 2021 even. Would you be, be comfortable doing them? I, I'm going to have to survey the landscape. I think what I'm going to do is the same thing I did this year, apply for every show that I want to do. And then when it comes down to having to send in that table fee, I'll have to assess whether or not I feel safe enough doing a show. Well, a lot of them are just rolling over the uh, people, right? So like it's the same people who got into cake for 2020 are doing 2021, right? Yeah. I believe which, so. I think. to me, like I think that's fair. But, yeah. uh, but also, I also feel like they should possibly open up to newer exhibitors as well, like because some people might have a different book in 2021 than they did in 2020. You know, like some I mean, some people might drop out, too. You got to keep that. Right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, like I'm cool with everybody from like a tabling standpoint. It's exciting to know that I'm going to do TCAF next year. But at the same time. It kind of sucks for those that didn't make the cut in 2020 to just automatically not be able to do shows in 2021. But, you know, there's no right answer, I guess, to that dilemma there because it would be unfair to everybody that didn't get to do the show. So I don't really know where I'm going with that. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know. know. We'll see. I don't know if I'll feel comfortable doing shows in 2021, but it could be a totally different world, you know. Yeah, I'm going to – yeah, I'm going to have to survey everything. Like I feel like timeline-wise, like as far as being comfortable, I feel like SPX 2021 because it's always in like September is probably the first show that I feel like might be safe. (laughs) But yeah, we'll Mm. we'll see, you know, because I just – I don't know. I don't know if we'll have enough uh, stop of COVID in the first quarter of the year and we'll see what happens. But the Spanish flu lasted, what, a year? Was it long? Was it two years? Well, I mean, as soon, <laughs> I think the main concern is two things, right? We need a treatment, like a reliable treatment, right. and then we also need vaccine. Yep. If we have both of those things, I will table at any show. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And I mean, medical science has uh, come way far in 100 years. So, yeah. you know. In the meantime, I will be going to every gas station and playing as many slot machines as I can. <laughs> that's, that's your right as an American. You should just do it. Exactly. It is my right. My body, my choice. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we were touching, I should have segued this into when you, when Cam was talking about the digital aspect of your work. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about coloring. Yeah. So you color your work digitally, right? It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a mix because the, the stuff I'm using, mm-hmm. it's not digital. It's like I'm taking like backgrounds from old comics from the 50s and 60s and pasting them into my comics. So it's, you know, it's done on a computer, but it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of a mix, I guess. Yeah, but it's it's all, I mean, in, in terms of like you not physically handling materials, oh, it's yeah, digital. Yeah. 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 And you, because I do notice a lot of texture in some of your work. Yeah. So are you just doing like overlays? Is that, you know, just a part of the process? 
Yeah, I just paste them into Photoshop in the end when I finish the whole comic. Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know what overlay it goes under the image i don't know i don't know yeah yeah so uh, well okay. stuff so i mean like when you have the layers for the colors right and then yeah, you're yeah. using swatches of scanned paper that yeah, you're yeah. using from other books yeah so are you dropping that right underneath the line work and you're not doing anything beyond that no that's it i just like like i'll, I'll do it with the lines too so the lines have a uh, have like old paper behind it as well so even like the black has but yeah it's just i'm just pasting it underneath and then that's that's really it. It's pretty simple. Yeah, I mean it's effective. It works really well, and you know the pages that I've seen using that method, it, it's I would say successful. So good on you. Thank you. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. Aren't we all? That's pretty much the 2020 slogan. Trying. We are all trying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much. So, where can people find you online? Like social media, website, Patreon, anything like that? I have a new website, which is goitercomics.com, which cost me $129 a year. So, if people could look at it and make it worth paying $129 a year. <laughs> just look at it. Just look at it. That's all. Yeah, just have yeah. a website. I just got rid of my Patreon because I felt like um, I, wasn't, I wasn't drawing anything. So, I felt like I was just taking people's money for nothing. Yeah. Hey, that's, that's a great feeling too, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, so I just deleted that. Uh, just Instagram, Goiter Comics, GoiterComics.com. That's it, really. Tumblr. Cool. Oh, you got a Tumblr, too? No. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you guys miss Tumblr, though? I really, I'm, I was thinking about this a lot recently, like the Simon Hanselman, Alex Schubert era of Tumblr. I was thinking about how much I miss that comics of that era. Yeah, I, I definitely do miss Tumblr as well. It was, it, was so, it was so much better for comics, I think. Tumblr was so much better for comics. Than Instagram. I agree. Yeah, I would really 100%. only uh, read on Tumblr. I wasn't making comics well enough to post, so I wish I was able to post on Tumblr because I, I do think that the experience of it was better. I miss boobs <laughs> and leaners. <laughs> yeah. Well, now they're flagging anyway. all that on Tumblr, so, you know. But, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for explaining my joke, yeah. Cam. Hey, anything I can do to help the gutter gang. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Thank you, Pete. Yeah. So, you know, that about does it for this episode, episode 32 of the Gutter Boys podcast that was actually brought to you in part with the Autoptic Festival of 2020. Like we've been kind of plugging on the show, um, there's going to be a lot of other content under this episode in your uh, podcast feed if you subscribe. And if you don't subscribe, it'll just be wherever you find our podcast at. Uh, make sure to listen to those. Uh, I do want to thank Josh again. I'm a big fan of uh, Josh's work. So to finally be able to talk to him on this podcast was uh, really nice for me. So thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. And, uh, you know, if I yelled, it's because these headphones, by the way, like really, I can't hear myself talk. So I, I think I may have yelled all the way through it. But OK, thanks for having me. <laughs> of course. And uh... that would have been fantastic if you were just screaming into the fucking mic the entire time. <laughs> yeah. It's like this guy really loves comics. <laughs> He's really excited about his comics. Yeah. All right. Well, as always, uh, if you wanted to participate with us in the show, we uh, ask questions on our Instagram accounts. I'm at Cam Del Rosario on there. JB is at Mort Crimp Jr. You can also email us at gutterboyspodcast at gmail.com. If you feel inclined, please, uh, you know, like, subscribe, and leave us a five star review or a one star review, however you feel about the show. It's always appreciated. And uh, as always, stay gutter. Down in the ocean, one by one, disappear. Down in the ocean, one by one, disappear. I build these bags and stack them against the dam. My on the wrong side of this wall And when the cracks appear The sirens will serenade On just the wrong side of mercy All I've ever done is hold The levee's thirst How could you sit there Just watching without a sound